Thank you for joining Radio Free Flint. This is Arthur Bush. Our episode today is with Duncan Beagle. This is part two of the interview. Duncan talks about his illness and his courage and the process that he went through to recover, uh, which made him a paraplegic. Uh, he also discusses his family. The Beagle family has practiced law uh, for approximately 120 years continuously in Genesee County. Duncan Beagle is a third-generation attorney. He discusses in the interview his father, John, uh, who was a great trial lawyer, uh, his grandfather, uh, Charles Beagle, who was the Genesee County prosecutor in 1929. He also discusses one of the most infamous cases, uh, a criminal case in Flint history, involving the collapse uh, and embezzlement of funds from the Industrial Union Bank, which was owned by Charles Stewart Mott in, in large part. Uh, he also discusses and closes the interview with a, a conversation about the justice system and where it stands today, uh, as well as uh, answers uh, quite thoughtfully uh, the question of whether Flint can make it and what it would take uh, to make city uh, make the city of Flint uh, a thriving uh, community once again. So without any further ado, here's Duncan Beagle. Uh, we'll join you on the other side. Thank you. One of the jobs that you were very fortunate to have done by somebody else uh, during most of your tenure as a judge was chief judge. Uh, <laughs> and your court, your court had two great chief judges in uh, Robert Ransom and Richard B. Ewell, uh, both of whom did what I thought was really a fabulous job. Somehow along the way, you got the idea that, 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 that it was your turn. A circuit judge has lots to do. They don't have much spare time during their workday. And so taking on the job of, of chief judge means you get to referee a lot of arguments between a lot of personalities in the courthouse and to some extent, even the community. Well, our, as you mentioned, our previous chief judge was uh, Rick Ewell and he and I knew each other very well. We went to high school together. We played on the same high school basketball team and you could count on weekends. We were the only two that would be foolish enough to get down to the courthouse and uh, catch up on our work. So I would often listen to him on the, on the issues going on that he was, uh, he was uh, so frustrated with or hoping to make some progress with. So when he retired, I said, well, you know, that'd be a nice way to end my career, be the chief judge. And so I recognize I'm coming down to the home stretch of my career. And to say the least, it's been challenging because I took over January 1 of 2020 I went to chief judge's school and three or four days later, I got called to a meeting at the county board, which was in the middle of March last year. And at the end of that meeting, they said, we're shutting all the county buildings down. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I'm thinking to myself, they don't even close the buildings down when there's 14 inches of snow. I said, this COVID thing must be pretty serious. Well, needless to say, over the last year, We've just been to meeting after meeting after meeting, trying to keep uh, keep our docket going, trying to try some criminal cases. In almost 13 months, we've tried two criminal cases. Uh, you can only imagine what that does to your backlog of cases. It's a pending case, so I shouldn't say too much about it. Uh, we've had a lot to do with the water cases due to the one-person one grand jury. 
So that's taken a lot of time and energy as well. So it wasn't quite what I had expected. Been interesting and challenging, but real tough issues going on, especially with COVID in the docket. Tell us what a chief judge does in general, just briefly. Well, as my court administrator would say, judges should do what they do best, which is judge and leave the administrating to the court administrators. However, the chief judge has to be the spokesperson for the court, and they work hand in hand with the court administrator to implement policies and procedures and uh, deal with everyday problems that come up that since you're the elected official and you're the, the voice of the court, you become the spokesperson on a lot of issues. So it has been challenging, uh, to say the least, especially uh, right now, because we've got so many people in the county jail that are waiting trial. And it looked like things were, uh, we were going to be able to get back to business here in March, but then the numbers spiked up again. And uh, good grief, I'm not sure when we're going to get back to it. But uh, the bottom line is it's been very challenging, very interesting. But uh, then again, I have to remember, I got a docket, I got to move forward to. Uh, let's switch gears for just a second. For many years, you were in private practice, and you had a number of positions in the legal community. Uh, you were a court administrator at one time in your life. You were a, a circuit court referee before you became a judge, which you heard you lived a busy life between all that stuff, you had a big practice, and then you were officiating games, you had a really busy life. And then something happened to kind of bring bring everything to a halt for a few minutes. Yeah, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was just walking down the street from the Flint Police Department. I was in private practice. My office was in the Mott Foundation building. And it happened to be the very day that uh, one of our judges, Nate Perry, was going to be sworn in that afternoon. And about halfway down the street, I had a numbness come over both of my legs, a little unusual. It wasn't painful. It was just kind of like a numbness where your arm or leg will uh, fall asleep when you're sitting in a chair or something. And so I, I don't know. I, I didn't know what to do. I called my family doctor that I was close friends with. He told me to lay down, call him in an hour because he was busy. And, uh, within that hour, when I attempted to get up, I couldn't even stand. Uh, long story short, I was in and out of hospitals for about uh, four months. They thought it was Gillian Barre to begin with. But then I went down to the University of Michigan and they said it was what they called transverse myelitis, which they felt was some kind of a virus that got into my spinal cord. Whatever it was, it certainly changed my life. Very blessed on two things. Number one, there was an opening in the circuit court when I was at the University of Michigan and I applied and very fortunate to be appointed by Governor Engler. Probably the most important thing was as I got married that year, I'd gotten engaged about 10 days before I came down with this ailment. I don't know whether I began to think, my gosh, is getting engaged? Is that what happened here? But my wife, Dana, is, is my rock. She stayed with me that entire time. And we got married about eight months after I came down with this. So at the end of the year, I came down with an incredible illness that's kept me in a wheelchair, but I was fortunate enough to become a judge and, and uh, marry a great and strong lady. 30 yeah. years ago, yeah, 1991. And you get around town. One of your close friends told me the other day that you get around town better than him, and he's 91 years old. <laughs> and, and I believe it's true. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed, and it's remarkable, and I've always, uh, I, I, I've always wanted to ask you this. Given that you were 
the guy that told me to keep my weight down, patting my belly of built up by many ice creams. You were the guy that was in impeccable shape and could run with those young kids on a basketball court. And then to see this happen to you, I, I just couldn't make sense of it. I never have seen you ever complain, take this as an excuse, uh, use it as some sort of, of way to minimize things that you really wanted to do. Where does that come from? Where, what is it that gives you this, this tremendous uh, will? Well, I'll tell you what, I, first of all, I think if anybody comes down with something like this health-wise, there's going to be a period where you're going to feel sorry for yourself. Woe is me. Why is this happening to me? I was no different than anyone else. Frustrated, uh, not knowing what was going to happen with my life, not knowing if I'd be able to work again. A variety of thoughts. And I think one, one thing, uh, you've got to have a tremendous support system, which I was very blessed to have. But I think one story was at the University of Michigan. I put me on a floor with a number of people with spinal cord injuries. And I remember a guy coming through in an electric uh, wheelchair and he bumped into my bed and kind of shook it up. And I kind of gave him a funny look. And uh, I don't know, for some reason that night, his bed was next to mine. We got talking and he said, you know, I've been watching you the last few days. And he said, you're older than me. But he said, I just want you to know you're going to be able to do 90% of what you did in life before. And I'm paralyzed from the neck down. And I've got three kids at home. I'll never be able to. He said, if you watch, I can't feed myself. I can't go to the restroom on my own. He said, I can't change the channel on the TV. He said, uh, you're blessed that your disability will not keep you from doing what you want to do to a significant extent. Well, he changed my attitude that night. We talked for about two or three hours about it. That changed it. And then, you know, after a while, I don't want to say it's simple, but there comes a point in your life when you got to look in the mirror and say, well, you know something, you got two choices. You can sit around and feel sorry for yourself and have everybody else feel sorry for you, or you can pick up the pieces and go forward. And if you do, don't complain about it. Don't bitch about it. Just move forward. So really, after you have that talk with you, that's uh, kind of what I decided to do. It's time to move forward. You can kind of joke and have a little fun with your disability and try and make the most of it. You know, I take a look at the young man I mentioned before, Willie McQueen, who lost his legs when he was seven years old. Well, I was able to enjoy a lot of physical activities up until I was in my early 40s. So I realize there's a lot, a lot of people out there much worse than I am. And besides the tremendous support of my wife and family and other friends like you, yeah, I was able to move ahead with my life. You have an amazing history in Flint. Uh, let's talk about your family and your mom and dad. The first time I ever heard that there was a Beagle family in Flint was when my mother told me that Mrs. Beagle was her teacher at Flint Central. Yep. So let's talk about Let's talk about her. Maud Beagle. She, uh, my grandfather met her in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. She was a school teacher. In fact, one of her students was Edward R. Merrill, the Walter Cronkite of our time, but uh, was certainly a well-recognized uh, person. She came to Flint, always wanted to be involved in drama and uh, oh, public speaking and things like that. So she set up at Flint Central High School for about 30 years and had play after play and she educated and motivated a number of people that went on to become practicing attorneys. 
I was only seven or eight when she passed away, but just knowing her that brief period of time and reading about her, she was a go-getter. She was a women's liver before they even invented the term women's lib. I mean, she was a work hard lady, no question about it, real inspiration to many people who wanted to get into drama and speech and that sort of thing. Quite often in our house, believe it or not, when those games between Central and Northern came along, my mother would always remember this teacher, Mrs. Beagle. I'm sure that you've had a lot of people in your life say, well, your mom was my teacher, right? Oh, no question about it. You know, obviously, most people have passed away, but uh, you no, know, my grandmother was, uh, she was, uh, she was one of a kind. Your, your father, let's start with him. He also is a lawyer. Tell us about him. Well, to be honest with you, I had, I had no desire to want to be a lawyer. He was, uh, he was the kind of guy that worked 60 to 80 hours a week. The only time I would sometimes would see him is when he uh, got into the bathtub and soaked there for hours upon end on a Saturday or Sunday, and that'd be my time to chit-chat with him. So I didn't want any part of that profession. Uh, but as years went by, I realized what a great, great lawyer he was. Uh, he was not only bright, but uh, he had a certain amount of charisma. He was good in the courtroom. Uh, the best way to describe him, because he was one of those World War II veterans, is he worked hard and played hard. Uh, when I'd go out with him socially, uh, my 20s and 30s, I couldn't keep up with him. And well into his 70s until he retired, uh, he'd still be working uh, 10, 12-hour days. That's just the way he was built. That's the way he uh, developed his practice. And uh, Till the day he retired, that was his motto. If you're going to go up against John Beagle, you better be prepared because he will outwork you. <laughs> he was a Flintstone. He was a he was a Flintstone. There's no doubt about that. Now, he had quite a quite a distinguished career. He liked politics. He got involved at a young age with what was called back then. I think it was the McKeegan Barnhart. McKay organization. He was very active in the Republican Party way back in those days, I think the 30s and 40s. And he was the young up and coming guy. And as you probably know, a lot of the people know about Bill McKeegan, who I think was the youngest mayor ever in the city of Flint. Real flamboyant, outgoing guy. My dad was able to be part of that organization. So he learned about the great game of politics at a young age and stayed with it for many, many years. I've heard him tell stories about the state conventions and all the crazy things they used to do. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun listening to those stories. Prior to his, I, I believe it was prior to his private practice, he became an assistant prosecutor. He was an assistant prosecutor and he was, uh, I think, an assistant attorney general for a while uh, and was practicing law until he uh, enlisted in the war, I think, back in 42, 43. He practiced law for how long in Flint? Well, my grandfather practiced for over 50 years, and my dad did as well. I think he practiced 53, 54 years. Did they ever overlap and practice law together? Were they ever yeah, the same? Yeah, it wasn't, a, wasn't a long period of time, but it was Beagle and Beagle for uh, several years, probably 10, 15 years, yeah. Your dad's practice near the end of his life was, was in domestic relations practice of divorce. He did a lot of criminal defense certainly represented a lot of defendants, high profile cases, and then he kind of specialized and got out of the criminal defense and did strictly uh, domestic work for the most part the last 20 years or so. Was he president of the bar at any time? He never was president of the bar. I think he uh, got involved in so many other different activities. He never was 
real active, active in the Bar Association. My grandfather was the uh, was one time president of the Genesee County Bar Association, uh, but my dad was not. And you've been president as well. Correct. Uh, let's talk about your your grandpa Charlie Beagle, as some of some of your family referred to him as. I think his first name's properly Charles. Correct. Let's talk about him and tell us tell us about his career. Well, he and my grandmother met in Minnesota, and he went out west of the state of Washington. I think he was the uh, prosecutor out there for a period of time. Then he came to uh, Genesee County, and I think he became prosecutor, I think it was 1928. And that's when uh, he gained a lot of notoriety going in. I was back in the days when they didn't have a staff of 20, 30 lawyers, or probably only he and maybe one assistant. But he tried an ungodly number of criminal cases. I think he won about 20 in a row at one point. And of course, he took on the one that uh, got a lot of national publicity involving the uh, the industrial bank. Now, the industrial bank was an infamous case they've written books about. Well, it got a lot of notoriety because that's when the stock market crashed. And there was a book that was written the day the bubble burst. And I think the guy kind of went into four different communities around the country, one of which was uh, Flint and Genesee County. And there were a number of uh, bankers out of the industrial bank, you know, took some money and invested it in the stock market. I don't think they were intending to defraud anybody. They just thought it might be a nice way to make some money. Unfortunately, uh, at the time that the stock market crashed, they got caught up in the middle of it and the bank lost a lot of money. And my grandfather had to make some decisions and I think there were 15 or 16 people that were actually uh, charged as a result of that, many of whom uh, later went on to prison. So it gained a lot of national attention just simply because a lot of them were uh, high executives within the bank that got caught. And they and it caused the bank to crash and there were lines and all that sort of stuff in front of the bank in downtown Flint. That episode with him prosecuting that case sort of was a blessing and a curse in his hometown. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Uh, I just know at the next election, uh, 1930, uh, he got defeated. I don't know whether it was a number of people that felt that he was too aggressive in charging some people or what. He, the case uh, got a lot of attention. I think looking back, he must have done an admirable job because justice was done. But the voters decided it was time for a different approach, I guess. And who did who replaced him? You know, if you asked me that 20 years ago, I could have told you, but I can't remember right now. <laughs> Actually, I think, no, I think it was I think it was Ralph Freeman when I was on the Flint School Board. In fact, I think Freeman Elementary is uh, named after him. And he went on to become a very successful uh, and respected federal judge, Ralph Freeman. I think I think he was the guy that succeeded. Yes. And then somewhere in there, Andrew Jackson Transu took took the helm. That's right. That's exactly right. And I don't remember how many terms he served. I thought he served a couple terms. And then, of course, he, he's a legend, too. We ought to do a podcast on him one day. Oh, yeah. Andrew became the, the congressman elected during the Roosevelt landslide of 1932. And he was elected as a Democrat, of all things. He got the vote on the New Deal. I can so remember because he was on the same floor as my grandfather. I remember one time he said, Yes, you said I was a congressman for one year. The voters of Genesee County have decided they would prefer that I go back and practice law. (laughs) 
was a walking history book. <laughs> Andrew, if you had time, you could uh, you could learn a lot from Andrew. So you're a third generation lawyer. Your father, your grandfather had distinguished careers as as you have. You're also looking at a representative of a major institution in the in the community, our justice system, our civil justice system, and the legal system. What's the state of that system? It, you know, people look at Flint and they say, well, we, we don't seem to be able to stand up a government that can make for clean water. You know, we have a number of other social problems that, you know, can be traced back to bad decision making. Flint's a lot more than it's it's governments that don't always work well. We have great institutions, great hospitals, you know, good banks. The justice system is one of those pillars that, that keeps society running well. How do you view its role in Flint? How has it performed? Well, you know, it's a good question, especially with what's going on in the country today. And I think I've really taken on a much better appreciation for our legal system. There are certain rules and laws and statutes and court rules that govern us. I know every day I'm in the courtroom, uh, if somebody goes a bit too far in their advocacy, saying the inappropriate things that we so often hear in discussions uh, with policy issues nowadays, uh, the judge has the means in which to uh, take control. You know, we certainly have uh, different forms of mediation uh, to try and settle disputes. Is our, can our system be improved? It certainly can. And there's been a lot of discussions over the last several years improving our criminal justice system. But overall, I think we're very fortunate to have the system we do. We still depend upon our jury system. And if you ask most people, they hate it when they get their letter to come to jury duty. But if they've had the opportunity to serve, I think all of them will look back and say it was a great experience. I'm glad I took part in it. I understand why we have it. And so I think we're, I think it's still a rock in our community. In fact, you know, with everything going on in Washington right now, and even uh, some of the uh, frustration with the city of Flint government and the state government, a lot of it goes back to, to the foundation of our legal system, which is uh, res be, be respectful to your opponent. You're an officer of the court that depends upon you and bringing uh, things truthful uh, in front of the court. And so I think we have to continue to work on it as lawyers and judges and so forth. But I think the system itself overall, while it needs improvement, has uh, tested the time and, it, and it's shown that we can make a significant dif difference. And look, I, I don't care every single day I take that bench. I've got a responsibility to be courteous, to be respectful, to listen, and to make a decision. As a lawyer, you come into court, you've got a responsibility and an obligation to bring your case forward uh, with hopefully uh, credible facts that you presented on behalf of your client. So as frustrated as we are with our situation in Washington and state government and local governments, I, I'm pretty proud of our profession right now, to be perfectly honest with you. Look, and to close up uh, our conversation, I wanted to ask you, uh, as a lifelong resident of the Flint community, uh, somebody who's, uh, you know, contributed a fair share, more than his fair share. What do you see about the future of Flint? Does Flint have a future? And if so, what is it that you think gives it that future? What gives you hope when you, when you look at the city of Flint, what is it that gives you hope that it's going to have more sunrises than sunsets? 
Well, I'll tell you what, that's an that's a excellent question. Let's be honest, there's a lot more people that are relocating out of Midwestern states else, uh, to move elsewhere in the country. We know what uh, grew Michigan and what grew Flint, much of it 1900s with the automobile industry, so many people coming here to begin with. But I think we're at the crossroads where we got to make some decisions. And, you know, for years, while the uh, automobile industry was going along and doing well and people were employed, uh, we all kind of did our own thing and we appreciated how lucky we were. Well, now we don't have uh, the almost 80,000 hourly worker jobs we had back in the late 70s. We have to roll up our sleeves and look in the mirror and say, what kind of a community do we want? And it's, I'll tell you, it's been an adjustment, but I think a lot of citizens are recognizing that you have to learn to partner with your next door neighbor. You have to know the guy down the street. You have to work with people in other parts of the city and see if you can't find some common ground. These are tough times because there's so much unemployment and so much poverty. I think that's one of the frustrations you see at some of our Flint City Council meetings and so forth. But, you know, it still goes back to the basics that you still got to be respectful, courteous and get to know your fellow neighbor, uh, you, the fellow person you're serving on the council with and see if you can't find common ground. And that has been a, a lost art. Whether if we can find a way, despite our differences, to see if we can't agree on some things, we can move forward to the point that, as I've said, five years from now, people will say, you want to know how to rebuild an industrial community, an urban community, go to Flint, Michigan. But that's up to all of us. That's up to our block clubs, our schools, our different professions to decide, do we want to complain about it and point the finger at somebody? Or do we want to roll up our sleeves and just, by golly, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm here not to be ashamed that I'm from Flint, but I want to rebuild this community and say, I'm proud I'm from Flint and Genesee County. So as I said before, in my own personal situation, you got two paths you can go. And I think the citizens of the community got to decide which way do you want? If I'm from another city and I meet you someplace on the street and I ask you to give me one or two words that describes the city of Flint, I don't know anything about the city. How would you describe it? It's one tough city that when the chips are down, we will outwork you. We will be respectful to you, but nobody nobody will work harder than the people of Flint City and Genesee County. Duncan McLaren Beagle, it's been an honor to have you as my guest on Radio <clears throat> Free Flint. It's good to see you again, my friend. And I, I want to give you a credit uh, for the show you're doing. And yeah, you've got me to be a regular now, and I'm going to pass this along to many of my other friends so you can increase your listening base. There we go. Thank you, Duncan. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Art. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us. That now concludes our uh, interview with Duncan M. Beagle, Genesee County Circuit Judge. This is part two you've just listened to. Part one can be found at www.radiofreeflint.media. That's www.radiofreeflint.media, where all of our episodes are kept. Also, if you'd like to send a suggestion, a comment, on this episode or others or have an idea for a, a podcast or perhaps uh, a suggestion for a guest uh, send along your suggestions at radiofreeflint at gmail.com that's radiofreeflint at gmail.com until next time 
Thank you very much. Goodbye.